Fred, we are in a move of God. Uh, we are not just waiting for or praying for revival. We are having one in this region. And I want you to know this is not normal. And I don't say that in a way to try to elevate our own position, but instead just to put you in awe and wonder of how good God is. In the midst of a world that seems like it's falling apart, a culture that has most definitely lost its mind, Jesus is doing something new amongst the churches in the Northwest. I think it proves that God has a sense of humor. And I think it proves that God's not yet done with us. And he desires mercy over judgment. And I think by his mercy and by his grace, he is awakening believers in this hour to the reality of his kingdom come, his will be done in the region, even as it's being done in heaven. So thank you for praying with us and standing with us. And uh, it was just cool to see all of the reports and feedback from some of the amazing things that uh, God did uh, on, on Friday. I've, I've been in contact with some of the organizers uh, of the event, and, and, and we helped them out quite a bit behind the scenes. But uh, they told me, they said, we would love to come back uh, to, to Snohomish but instead do a rally with 15 or 20,000 next time. And so we'll go shoot for that next summer. I was with them uh, in Seattle uh, on Saturday night uh, as well. And uh, Seattle, was, Seattle was fun, but, but had, had about one-fifth of the crowd that we had here at Stahomish. And so they just kept saying, we didn't even know this town existed. We didn't even know this place was here. What, what's going on in Snohomish? We got a lot of farming. Uh, we, got a lot of, we got a lot of acreage. We got a lot of fields. We got some antique shops. We got a hardware store. We, we got some cool things here. Uh, but uh, it just proved, God always does good things in small cities. Uh, come on, do you, do you remember when it was prophesied that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth? And even Nathaniel, the disciple, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they said, come and see. And I, I feel like that, that's going to be the testimony for the Northwest. Can anything good come out of the Northwest? Can anything good come out of Seattle? Can anything good come out of Snohomish? Yes, come and see. Come and see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Friend, this thing is just taking off. Come on, this, this, this plane is just catching altitude. We are scratching the surface. If you think this is wild, this is a 5% down payment on what God's about to do next. Our best days are ahead. Scripture says the reign of the latter is greater than the reign of the former. I'm telling you, the stories that you have read about Revival will simply be footnotes in the next awakening that God does in this region. There is unfinished business in the Northwest, and you and I are a part of it. And if God can do it in this city, guess what? He can do it anywhere. And it's to his credit, and it's to his glory. And you and I, we get to be a part of that. It is one of the great privileges and the great honors to be co-labors and co-heirs of God in Christ Jesus, seated in heavenly places. Do not say four months and then the harvest. But lift up your eyes. The fields are ripe unto harvest. And so therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers into his harvest fields. You're not here to watch the work of the ministry. You're here to do the work of the ministry. You're not here to simply observe the passion of a single person on stage, but instead to be caught up in the heart of God in such a way that you begin to believe my best days aren't behind me, but ahead of me. And God has equipped me with everything I need pertaining to life and godliness because he's the father of light. In him, there is no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift come from the father above. He has equipped me to be and do something in the time that I have left. If you still got a heartbeat in your chest, you still got a pulse in your body, then you've still got a purpose, a destiny, a vision, and a mission, something to accomplish. If you're breathing this morning, you're in a good place. 
because God's not done with your life. And if it's not good, it's not over because he always ends things better than they started. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him. I'm just going to dare you to believe that God is as good as scripture says he is. And he can do everything scripture says he can do. If we could just get Christians to believe Christ, the world would be changed. If we could just get believers to actually believe, the world would be transformed. And so I'm going to dare you just to believe. I'm just going to dare you to believe that every word of Scripture is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. I'm going to dare you to believe that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words remain. I'm going to dare you to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. I'm going to dare you to believe that he is a narrow road to a narrow door, but all who enter into him will have eternal life. I'm going to dare you to believe that through the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection, you can have a family and a city transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to dare you to believe that God is that good. This is the Jesus we serve. And the last time he rode into Jerusalem, he was on the back of a peace donkey. But when he returns, he'll be on the back of a war horse. And he's coming for a victorious bride. Over the next number of weeks, I will be teaching on the return of Christ. And I won't get it perfect. And I won't be 100% right. But I'm going to do the best that I can to unpack the orthodox teachings and beliefs of the Bible-believing Christian church in such a way that you leave here today convinced I live on borrowed time in the shadow of the imminent return of King Jesus. That's my goal. I want to leave you with a Luke 24 burning heart. I want you to leave this place today and feel like you've just walked on a road with Jesus and he's opened the scriptures and taught you. And you, you, you leave here feeling today like there is a reality that is not far off. It is not so many days or so many months or so many years, but we live in the ever incoming reality of his kingdom crashing into ours. Friends, you live on borrowed time. No, you don't have forever. You live on borrowed time. You are not an earthly person having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual person having an earthly experience. You are passing through and this world is passing away. And I want to teach you out of the scriptures and convince you of this reality. Jesus is coming soon. I had somebody talk to me after service. They said, Pastor, I've been in church full time every Sunday the last 15 years. I have never heard a message on the return of Christ on a Sunday morning, ever, not once. I want to let you know that this message was the central obsession of the church fathers. It was written about by people like Eusebius. It was taught on by people like Augustine. It was authored by people like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. It was taught by Jesus in his parables. It was prophesied by Ezekiel. It was prophesied by Isaiah. It was taught by Jesus in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 and Luke 21. Over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus communicated to his disciples and by proxy communicated to all who would follow him that although I am seated at the right hand of the Father, my return is imminent. And friend, if they lived in the last days 2,000 years ago, then I would humbly submit to you that not only are we in the last days, but we are in the last hour. And Jesus is returning soon. No, it's not enough for you to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. You have to believe in his bodily resurrection. And you also have to believe in his bodily return. It's not an ancillary doctrine. I know that we don't like to talk about it because we have been so discipled by enlightenment 
that when it doesn't make sense on paper, we rather not talk about it because it makes us look crazy. Friend, the resurrection can't be explained, but it will explain you. We are people who have been crucified with Christ and raised to new life. This is the hope of the gospel, that death no longer has the final say in your life. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day you will have a physical, literal resurrection by which your body gets out of a grave. It is transformed into his image and likeness. You see the one who you pierce. You see the nail prints in his hands. You see the hole in his side, the nail prints in his feet. You see the one that we wounded, resurrected, and you live with him forever. That is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. It's not make-believe. It's not science fiction. It's not Star Trek. It's not a bad left-behind movie with Nicolas Cage. It is the reality of Scripture. Jesus is coming soon. Come on, I want you to know, friend, this morning, it's not just a make-believe. It's not just a hope-so. It's not just a maybe if God's in a good mood. No, it is the promise of Scripture. That's why the Bible calls it our blessed hope. See, when you're anchored in eternity, it helps you manage the middle because you know the master is returning soon. Isn't that the parable of the wise servant versus the foolish servant? One stewards their talent, the other wastes it. The one who stewards his talent well stewards it because he knows the master is returning soon. See, when you have a theology that places Jesus at the center of everything, and convinces you of his soon return. It makes you a wise steward of the borrowed time that you've got left. No, friend, you live on borrowed time. You live on, on, on borrowed time. I want you to imagine just for a moment this morning. I want you to imagine just, just for a moment this morning. You're, you're just having another day at the office. You're just having another casual commute to work. You're just sharing another meal around the dining room table like you have done thousands of times before. You're sitting in your car. You're, you're standing in line to get coffee. You're, you're having a conversation on the phone. You're laying in your bed about to begin your day. And all of a sudden, you hear a shout. And immediately followed by that shout, you, you hear the blast of a trumpet. And all of a sudden, the ground beneath you begins to shake. And, and all of a sudden, you look outside your window and you see tombs opening up. And dead men and women getting out of their graves. And with great awe and wonder, you shift your gaze heavenward as you see a man clothed in white descending. And all of a sudden, your body begins to lift. And in an instant, you meet Christ in the air. I want you to imagine what the news will say on that day where over 2 billion Christians disappear off the earth. I want you to imagine the conspiracy theories that they will need to construct to cover up for their unbelief. I want you to imagine what that day is like because we live in the generation that will see it. Friend, we are in the last hour of the last days. The Bible says the sky will unroll like a scroll. And with the sound of a trumpet blast, Christ will descend. And his descent will be so powerful that it literally shifts the landscape and for a final time breaks the curse of death over earth. The seas will give up their lost. The graves will open up and dead men and, and, and women will walk around. And those of us who are alive, the apostle Paul says, will be caught up in the air with him. 
And I know what you're thinking. You've seen all the movies of all of a sudden just a pile of clothes laying on the floor and a, a body disappeared and it kind of looks like a bad CGI, a bad sci-fi effect. And look, I don't know how it's going to look or how it's going to work. I just want to be ready for when the day arrives. Because scripture says this, be watchful, be hopeful, and pray for his return is soon. And I just figured we've done a great disservice to believers who've sat in church for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years and never heard a message on the return of Christ. Friend, it's imminent. It's not a maybe. It's not a I hope so. It's not some sort of weird message to try to get you to tithe more because the end is tomorrow. No, his return is imminent. And watch, he's coming back for a glorious bride, which is you and I, without spot or without wrinkle. Hear me, he's not coming back for a girlfriend. He's coming back for a bride. He's not coming back for people who date the church. He's coming back for a bride. He's not coming back for people who don't have oil in their lamps, for they will miss the day of their appearing. That's why right after Matthew 24, Jesus goes into a parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And the wise ones had enough oil in their lamp because the bridegroom appeared when they least expected him. He came at midnight. This is the type of church that Christ is returning for. You know, in the summer, it's a very busy season for, 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 for me as a pastor. One of the reasons why it's so busy in summer is because everybody wants to get married in the summer season. In fact, Snohomish is ranked as one of the top five destination wedding locations in the United States. People love coming here for the barns and the aesthetic and kind of that Norman Rockwell vision of America. It feels very uh, uh, like home and, and familial. And, and people literally from around the nation come to Snohomish to be married. And when I officiate a wedding, it's not like I just show up for the ceremony. I always have to go to this thing they have the day before called the dress rehearsal. And I was at a dress rehearsal just last week. And I felt like right in the middle of it, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, every time you gather on Sunday morning, it is a dress rehearsal for the wedding that is to come. You are preparing for that day. Well, what's the point of showing up? I already heard this message. What's the point of being here? I don't really need, I already graduated out of discipleship. I figured out everything. I just, I'm just good just by myself. No, you're practicing right now. You're preparing to rule and reign with him. This is the dress rehearsal for the great wedding banquet of the lamb. What we do here matters for eternity. Fred, Christ is returning soon. In uh, the book of uh, Acts, uh, as Jesus is ascending, just prior to the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that he was taken up before their very eyes, the disciples, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men, angels, dressed in white, stood beside them. And they said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking in the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. Some translations say will come back in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. 
which means this, his return will be personal, it will be visible, it will be glorious, and it will be witnessed by all of earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. Hear me, on that day, people who mocked will mourn. People who doubted and disbelieved will be devastated. People who thought it would never rain will knock on the door of the ark, but it will be too late. Friend, get ready. Jesus is coming soon. Can't you sense it when you look around? These are birth pains that signal the end is near. Now, before you accuse me of being some sort of doomsday prophet, just let me read to you the words of Jesus from Matthew 24. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will return. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. He would have not left his house to be broken into. So you must also be ready. Because of the Son of Man who will come at an hour when you do not expect. In Titus 2, the Bible says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friend, we refuse to fall prey to moralistic deism. We are Christians and our faith is founded on both his bodily resurrection and his imminent bodily return. These are essential doctrines. We have a supernatural faith. Sometimes because of the world that we live in, especially the area of the world in which we live in, we have so overvalued intellectualism, education, and enlightenment. You know what I've found? Most people in this area have been educated out of their own usefulness. They become wise in the eyes of man and fools in the eyes of God. Even people who profess faith in Christ who mock things like the return of the Son. But sometimes in our effort to make the gospel more palatable, more appropriate, more relevant, we strip it of its supernatural nature. Well, I don't really know if Christ is going to return. You know, it kind of sounds like a fairy tale. And I don't really know if God still moves today in healings and signs and wonders and miracles. And, you know, I don't know if we really need that stuff in the West. You know, really it's other people in other third world nations. They're the ones who really need miracles, not us over here. Oh, yeah, because we're doing real hot. <laughs> yeah, because we're really headed in the right direction. You're right. We've totally graduated out of our entire need and dependence on God to be God. But in our effort sometimes to reduce scripture to the level of our understanding, we've kicked out everything that doesn't make sense in our enlightened mind. And can I tell you, 
The foolishness of God is more wise than the most wisest of men. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. But all those who put their hope in the Lord will not be set to disappointment. Friend, I'm not living paranoid. Hear me. I'm living prepared, knowing that I operate on borrowed time. You've got two decisions that you can make this morning. You can hear a message on the return of Christ and immediately go home and order a bunker off of Amazon. You can fill that bunker with dried food and a tinfoil hat and go down there and wait for, you know, whatever impending doom and gloom and war that's coming. Or you can be a believer who understands that you have a mandate to occupy, build, develop, be a part of the harvest, have a family, develop a sphere of influence. We are building, occupying, and advancing until he returns because that's how I manage the talent he's given me. No, I'm not just waiting for the big bad world to finally go away for God to be able to take me home. No, he's put the hope of glory inside of you. He's put the answer inside of you. He's made you a kingdom ambassador on purpose. He gave you the authority of heaven for a reason. And for you and I, we operate with a mandate, not of fear, but of boldness and courage. Even like it said of the disciples, who are these men who turn cities upside down? Friend, the most important thing that you will ever prepare your life for, your kids for, isn't that new job, it's, it's not that college career, it's the return of Christ. And Jesus, in Matthew 24 and in chapter 25, he talks about several signs that point to the return. It's a prophetic discourse. He's sharing with his disciples things that they won't readily understand. In fact, even at one point, the disciples turn to him when he's speaking in parables and they say, can't you just tell us in plain language what you mean? And Jesus is intentionally using parables and analogies as a way to develop the hearer and the seer in all of us. He's saying there are things that are hidden right in front of you, but it's going to require some digging to get there. We want everybody else to develop our faith for us. We want everybody else to develop our gift for us. We want every other leader in our life to function as our spiritual puppet master and then blame them when our life doesn't go well. But Jesus has hidden truth, oftentimes right out in the open, just in places that we've overlooked. It's the wisdom of God to conceal a matter. And scripture says, but it's the wisdom of a king to search it out. There is something in your life spiritually that begins to be developed when you search these things out. And I know there's a lot of competing opinions. And Revelation really, it truthfully, is, 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 is in some ways a, a hard book to pull apart. It's apocalyptic literature from 2,000 years ago, translated from an ancient language into modern English. It's difficult at times to understand. And where two or three are gathered, there's probably 150 different opinions on eschatology. It's not my heart to try to convince you to see things exactly the way that I see them. However, I want every Bible-believing Christian to leave this place today convinced you live in the last hour of the last day of his imminent return. Now, we don't put a time or a date because Jesus says not to, and that would be foolish to do so. 
And people get into all sorts of error and heresy and just craziness when they try to attach all of these kind of conspiratorial dates to the return of Christ. We have seen that over and over and over again in our culture. In fact, there's a book that I have on my bookshelf at home, and it was a pamphlet that was printed in, in the late 1980s, and it's called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. <laughs> now, it's not in production anymore for obvious reasons, but I have a copy. I literally bought a copy several years ago off of eBay because I wanted to keep it to remind myself of how even really well-intentioned people can get off in air when they're not anchored in hope. <clears throat> See, you've got to be anchored in Scripture. You've got to be anchored in what God says and what God declares. Jesus says, I don't even know the date of my return, nor the angels in heaven. Only the Father does. So if only the Father knows, then let's just leave it with the Father. But let's also be aware of what Jesus teaches because he says, when you see these signs, you know the end is near. In fact, earlier in the book of Matthew, I believe it's chapter 16, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you know more about the shifting weather than you do about the shifting spiritual climate you're in. I think that's true about some believers in the Northwest. We know more about what the weather report says about how next week is going to look than we are aware of the signs in our culture that are pointing to his return. Friend, get this in your spirit today. Look, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to hype you up. There's no hook at the end of this message outside of an invitation to put faith in Jesus Christ. But what I've found is that every time I teach on the return of Christ, the awe, fear, and reverence of the Lord fills the place. Because all of a sudden, we begin to shift into the way he thinks about this place. And can I tell you one of the only things that is preventing Christ from returning even in this moment is the desire of the Father for more to know Him. We live in the last days. Let me give you seven signs. Seven signs, very quickly. Number one, lawlessness, wars, and rumor of wars. Now this is from Scripture. I didn't make this up. This is from Scripture. Watch, Matthew 24. You will hear... Wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Oh, friend, you can't even turn on the news today without going into a panic attack about the nations that are raging. And that's why even the Old Testament says of God, while the nations rage, he laughs because he knows how it ends. Let me just read to you a list of nations right now that are engaged in massive war and conflict. Let me just give you a few. Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, Sudan, Lebanon, Venezuela, Cuba, Ethiopia, Iran, Russia, Turkey, Palestine, Israel, China. The president of both Haiti and the nation of Chad were just assassinated. Riots are breaking out across the European continent as more restrictions and lockdowns are coming. Friend, the nations are shaking, and this is a sign. You might say, well, pastor, come on. The nations are always shaking. There's always different wars going on. No, I agree. But we are seeing a tenfold increase in our time than anything we've ever seen before. And it doesn't just say wars and rumors of war. It says lawlessness. Friend, lawlessness is the spirit of the age. It's the spirit of the Northwest. 
I won't be governed by anybody. I've got my own truth. You'll never tell me what to do. You'll never tell me how to live. You'll never tell me what my life's got to look like. I won't be governed by anyone. Can't you see how even our political leaders have aligned with lawlessness? They have called evil good and good evil. They've actually incentivized lawlessness in our streets. You can do whatever, smoke whatever, say whatever, camp wherever. You can steal up to a certain amount without any ever type of penalties being occurred. It's a spirit of lawlessness and outrage that's taken over our streets. And friend, hear me. It is a sign. And it points that the end is near. Lawlessness is not just a spirit. It also, at a future date, will be personified as an individual. And the Bible says that that man will be known as the Antichrist. But when the Apostle John teaches on the Antichrist, he says, but the spirit, watch, of the Antichrist is already at work. And I'm telling you, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. Yeah, I know everybody always tries to guess who the Antichrist is. Every time your favorite politician loses, the other guy's the Antichrist. <laughs> Y'all just got to relax. Now watch, number two, drought, famine, and plague. Now you're going to be real encouraged today, but drought, famine, and plague. Now watch. Now just give me, I need another five minutes from the team, so just give me time. I need to teach. Matthew 24, there will be famines in various places. Luke 21, famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Revelation 6 speaks of the plagues that come upon the earth. Friend, hear me. We are in a new age of biological complexity. Never before has our world faced the challenges that we are facing today. Hear me very carefully. I am not scared of COVID, but if you think the worst is behind us, you aren't paying attention. This is a sign of the times. Hear me. Just let me say something before you get offended and write an email mid-service. Just hear my heart, okay? <laughs> let me say something. The vaccine isn't the mark of the beast, okay? Hear me. But it should concern every believer that we are quickly developing into a society that seeks to restrict the free movement, capacity, and individual liberty of people who choose different medical outcomes than what the government prescribes. We are quickly heading down a road of almost no return. Will we live in a centralized biological medical state where proof of vaccination status becomes the ticket of admittance to participation in a free society? Or will people remain free to make and manage their own private medical decisions? We are at a crossroads as a country. I'm not making this up. I didn't watch Fox News before I preached this morning and I'm all amped up. That's not how I work. There's already vaccine passports in New York. That's already happening. There's already a list of close to 200 businesses in Seattle that won't even service you lest you have vaccine proof before walking in the door. We are quickly headed toward a place in our society where the biological medical state micromanages the individual liberty and freedom of people just like you and just like me. I don't think the vaccine's the mark. I don't think you can prove that scripturally. I think it's pretty stupid to say, but I am concerned 
of our government and its increase in totalitarian, authoritarian oversight that is getting so large that it seeks to micromanage and punish even people of religious faith who object for various reasons. Friend, that's where we are as a country. It's not a conspiracy anymore. I told y'all last week I need new conspiracies because all the ones I used to believe are now happening in the world around us. I'm not anti-vax. I'm anti-big government micromanaging your personal life. I'm anti a government that's big enough to give you everything you ever hoped, dreamed, or desired and big enough to take it away. I'm against a government that incentivizes people not to work because it thinks it can just print money till kingdom come without any type of economic repercussions. I'm against a government that says trust the science but believes men can be women and women can be men. I'm against a government that seeks to restrict and get rid of the, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. Those are things I stand against. Oh, I've been battling behind the scenes with government agencies. They ain't happy. But I, I, just, I, just, I, just, I just know as the church goes, so goes the, so goes the nation. Y'all see what's happening in Australia? Y'all see what's happening in other nations of the earth? Man, we, we have a mandate in this hour to be people of theological clarity, not given to extremes, but also stubborn in our obedience of Christ. There is no king but Jesus. There is no way but the way, the truth, and the life. There is no higher authority, and Christ is the head of the church. Now watch, not just, not just that, but number three. Hear me, earthquakes. You might say, man, this is crazy, Russell. You're making stuff up. Okay, Luke 21. There will be great earthquakes and fearful events and great signs from heaven before the end. Matthew 24, there will be great earthquakes in various places. Just in the United States, hear me, we have six-fold increase in earthquakes in the 20th century, just in the United States. Now, you know something because you live in this region. We live in a region, a geological zone called the Ring of Fire. 75, 75% of the earth's volcanoes are in the Ring of Fire. 90% of all seismic activity happens in our region of the earth. And Jesus, for whatever reason, uses this geological example as a sign that points us to the return of Christ. Now, I don't know why he picked earthquakes out of all the things that he could have picked, but at least two different times, he specifically talks about the earth shaking in a real sense and using it as a sign that his return is imminent. And we know that God has orchestrated earthquakes before. Remember when Paul and Silas find themselves in a Philippian jail and all of a sudden the earth shook and doors opened? Remember when Christ was crucified on the cross? As he breathed out, it is finished and the earth shook and the veil was torn. Jesus oftentimes orchestrates natural things on earth that represent spiritual realities. Jesus said, not me, not some online blogger. No, Jesus says there will be great earthquakes, an increase in this activity, and it points us to the return. Uh, let me give you number four. Matthew 24 and 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world 
Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and then the end will come. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Now watch, watch. International missions organizations have determined, I just read this, it's from an organization called Finish the Task. You can look it up for yourself. That as of today, right now, as of this morning, there are yet to be reached 144 groups. And they estimate that by 2033, in 12 years, they will have active evangelical churches with church planting strategies in all remaining 144 groups. Jesus says this gospel will be preached to every nation, every group, and then the end will come. Friend, we live in the shadow of the return of Christ. The team could come forward. Number five, a falling away and a great deception. First Timothy 4, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Not everyone who claims Christ belongs to Christ. Be careful which teachers you allow to play a developmental role in your life. Now watch what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. And let me ask you a question. Does this sound like the world we live in? But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Paul, writing Timothy, who pastors in the city of Ephesus, says these are the characteristics that you will see manifest wide scale across population groups as a sign that the end is near. Friend, do you know that right now you are sitting in between two great revivals? Number one, there's a revival of righteousness. We're seeing it in the Northwest. We're seeing it in Snohomish and beyond. People are coming to the Lord. The church is being revived. The kingdom is advancing. It's incredible. We are also in the middle of what I would call a revival of iniquity. And I believe from scripture, it communicates that both of these revivals grow together until the culmination of time. You remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? They both grow together until the farmer is ready to harvest. Although we're seeing incredible things, more people coming to the Lord than ever before, entire nations being rocked by the message of the gospel, the church advancing against all odds, we are also in a revival of iniquity. The days are both getting lighter and darker at the same time. And Paul tells Timothy these are signs that point to the end. Friend, the future belongs to the brave. It belongs to the orthodox. It belongs to the faithful. We can't afford for our love to grow cold because it's never been more important to burn bright. Number six, persecution. Jesus says in Matthew 24, you will be handed over to be persecuted. 
You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. They will betray and they will hate each other. Hear me. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than the first 19 centuries combined. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that the blood of the martyrs cries out for justice before the throne of God. The question they ask is, oh Lord, how long will you wait? It's a sign that that points to the times. Mission statistics tell us that close to 310 million Christians live amongst the top 50 most persecuted nations for people who put faith in Christ. Meaning this, about one in eight Christians today faces persecution that you couldn't even fathom. Maybe one of the events that has marked me most in my life is when I had the privilege to travel to North India and teach in a Bible college and a ministry school in the middle of a majority Hindu population village. And about the second week of my teaching at this Bible college in North India, I began to notice that a lot of my students had all sorts of markings all over their body. I just thought to myself, maybe it was a birth defect, Maybe it was a medical thing. It could be that they were from a leper colony. All sorts of things go through your mind. So finally, I pulled the director aside and I said, I said, I said, why do all these students in my class have markings on their body? Some are missing limbs. Others have disfigurement on their face. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, pastor, you wouldn't understand because it's not like that in America. He said, all these young men and young women When they have put faith in Christ Jesus, they've been burned with acid by their family members. They've had limbs cut off by their family members. Their family members hold public funerals for them because they say their children are dead. They've been beaten by the elders in their village. They've been persecuted in ways you could ever imagine. And they came here to this Bible college to learn how to preach and pray so that one day they could go back to the places that they've been persecuted in and plant churches. I thought to myself, man, we will never know the cost that other people have paid to worship in places that we take so casually. We'll never know. And Jesus says persecution and its ever increase is a sign that points to his return. Number seven, let me end here. The Bible speaks. In fact, Ezekiel prophesies that there is coming a day where God will regather Israel as a nation. Maybe the most significant Bible prophecy to be fulfilled in the last hundred years was when Israel came back into existence as a nation in 1948. It's not just political. It's not just a cool fact that you write about in some sort of geography or political science test in community college. No, it is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And when the writers of scripture talked about a time where God would again regather his people in Jerusalem, they had no idea. Ezekiel prophesied during a time period where the temple was destroyed, the people were carried off in bondage, the nation had been decimated, and God spoke to Ezekiel and he said, do you see the valley of dry bones? I'm going to recover and bring my people back to their holy city. 
Friend, I'm telling you, we live in the very shadow of the imminent return of Christ. People will be eating and drinking. They will be married and given in marriage. They will be going about their day as if nothing was happening, as if everything is normal. And in a split instant, there will be a global sound. And at that moment, it'll be too late. Fred, I'm asking you today if you're right with Jesus. Friend, I'm asking you today, are you living with the end in mind? Are you living with eternity in focus? Come on, it's not a make-believe story. It's a real gospel with a real Jesus who is coming really soon. And today is a day of decision. Come on, as we end, I'm going to put this prayer up on the screen and we're going to take some time to, to read it together and and, uh, and just about at the end of, of every service over the next number of weeks, I'm going to give people an opportunity. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've never put faith in Jesus, or maybe you have at one point in your life, but if you were to be honest, you're far from him. Friend, I want to give you an opportunity because there is coming a day where it will begin to rain. And when it begins to rain, it is too late to knock on the door of the ark. Scripture says, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but instead invite him in. And I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here today, you are hearing the voice of God knocking on the door of your heart because God has planted eternity in your spirit. It's a day of decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. Would you guys just read this with me on the count of three? We're just going to read it all together. And I just ask you as a congregation, come on, let's read it together. One, two, three. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.